What goes hand in hand with the pursuit of happiness oftentimes will be the pursuit of money. On today's Keeping It Real, it's part two of our Killer Gods and Idols series, entitled The Idol of Money. Again, this podcast soaks in raw honesty and transparency. And so to be real, it would be pretty easy to say that massive numbers of people, particularly in developed countries like here in America, have infatuations with increasing their wealth. We see this with people being driven to gamble on the lottery or on sporting events, and we see it in how people will overwork themselves to near death, all in the name of accumulation. What's the point to worshipping the idol of money? Well, may I suggest it has to do with perspective. The money that one has in a bank account, retirement fund, a stock or bond, or under their pillow, where did it come from? And whose money is it really anyway? We'll answer these questions and cover so much more in this critical episode, The Idol of Money. Welcome to the Keeping It Real podcast. Only tired of fake stuff? Shouldn't we turn down a stale brand of living? It's time to open our hearts to Christ. It's time to keep it real. Here's your host, Ollie Gee. And welcome back to yet another episode of the Keeping It Real podcast, where you can catch... Uh, this episode also at www.kirradio.com. You can catch every episode of the podcast there, plus so much more that is included in the greater Keeping It Real network. The idol of money is what we're going to be uh, zeroing in on today on this second part of this Killer Gods and Idols series. Uh, the foundational message was the idol in the mirror. That is a very important message to listen to. If you've not listened to it already, I greatly encourage you to check that out. And it is critical for you to listen to that episode before really moving on with this episode or any of the future episodes in this series. But today, this episode is called The Idol of Money. There is a driving force for money. We call that greed, or it is better known as greed. First uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 in the Bible says, or money is the root of all kinds of evil. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 says, you shall not covet. That is the 10th commandment of the 10 commandments. And it expounds on that within that verse saying, you shouldn't covet their their house. You shouldn't covet their possessions, their, their spouse, so on and so forth. So it gives some specifics as well, but uh, thou shall not covet. Basically, you shouldn't want what somebody else has, uh, or you shouldn't have a craving, you shouldn't have a lust for that. So there is a driving force for money. It is a lot more prevalent in developed countries, first world countries. And because uh, currency plays such a huge role in so many people's everyday lives. Again, uh, the, uh, the idol in the mirror title of the prior message is foundational to this message. And again, I cannot emphasize enough how critical it is to listen to that uh, episode of the podcast. What worshiping the God of money costs. It costs a lot, but here are the two leading uh, costs. First, it costs someone their divine sight. It lead, In other words, it leads to spiritual blindness. Okay, it, Paul spoke to the Corinthians about this, that spiritual things can only be spiritually discerned. Uh, it takes... Uh, one's eyes of the heart to really be able to see the things of the Lord. That's why the heart needs to be redeemed. It needs to be rightly connected to Christ in order to really have any opportunity to see spiritual things, uh, at least spiritual things that would be of substance. 
The other thing it costs is a God-ordained unity. Uh, in other words, friction will result uh, or will ensue. Because of there being disunity, and I'm not talking about uniformity. Uniformity is not biblical. Uh, that's where people just agree because they're forced to agree or they don't really have an opinion or don't know what opinion they could have for they themselves. So they just go along with what has been proposed by one or more select individuals. So what worshiping the God of money costs, what that driving force for money costs is divine sight, which leads to spiritual blindness, and God-ordained unity, which leads to friction. God-ordained unity is another way of saying people of faith being like-minded, being of one accord. How does someone get, or how do a group of people get to be of one accord? It is when Jesus Christ is at the core or at the center of the affairs, the conversations, the dealings of that gathering or of that group of people, and he gets the preeminence. And what naturally, or should I say supernaturally, outflows from that is a growing consensus of what God wants. It's not people's opinions. It's not people's uh, theological binks that are necessarily of essence. It is Jesus Christ and his spirit that leads that gathering and leads them to be of one accord in a particular direction or coming to a a decision on a certain matter. The drive to worship the God of money will get a person a little something while they lose everything. So we have two characteristics in worshiping the idol of money. And before we get into those characteristics, I'm going to get into reading our core verse or passage, should I say, of the Bible today for this particular episode of the Keeping It Real podcast, again, entitled The Idol of Money. The core passage is found in Luke chapter 16, and I'll be beginning reading in verse 10 and go all the way through verse 13. So again, Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 10, the Bible says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. All right, so two characteristics there are that we're going to gather from this passage and that we can gather, generally speaking, from the drive for money, the driving force for money, the chase after wealth. The drive to worship the God of money gets a person a little something while they lose everything. There are two characteristics in worshiping the idol of money. The first one is mismanaging personal money. Okay, we first of all see that in verse 11 of the passage that I just read. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous man, if you have not been faithful. So Jesus is stressing the issue of faith, stressing that within the context of managing money. Now, let's go back for a moment, way back, okay? At the beginning of time as we know it, at least within the context of here on earth, God created everything in six days, rested on the seventh day. And on the sixth day, that final day of when he was actively creating 
he created man. He created Adam. And then shortly thereafter, he takes from Adam and fashions another human being known as a woman, more specifically Eve. All right. So when Adam and Eve are on planet Earth, and more specifically in the Garden of Eden, they did not have to worry about currency. They didn't have to worry about, as Jesus mentions in chapter 11 of Luke 16, they didn't have to worry about this unrighteous mammon and more about this unrighteous mammon uh, in a moment. I'll expound on that in just a little bit. But when you think of the time of Adam and Eve living in the Garden of Eden, being able to freely eat of any tree within the Garden of Eden, with the exception of one, they didn't have a currency. They didn't have to worry about accumulating money or making money in order to afford certain things. They were completely God-sufficient. They had everything that they needed, anything that they could have ever wanted or asked for in the middle of the Garden of Eden. They didn't have currency. Now, currency developed and the concept of earning currency developed after sin entered into the world. And we see this come about as the generations go by, as it leads up to Noah and then the post-flood era. And we see this with Abraham. Abraham was described in Genesis 12 as a very wealthy man. And wealth was uh, measured by land and livestock back then. I mean, now it's with whatever currency that you handle, whether it be dollars, euros, or yen, or some other currency. Uh, it's also measured in part a little bit by resources, what home, if you own a home, what size home you own, how many uh, possessions you have, that sort of thing. But mostly it is measured by uh, some sort of money, a uh, currency, uh, and that will depend on where you live in the world. But back then, or close to back to the time of Adam and Eve, it was valued by land and livestock. Well, Adam and Eve didn't have to worry about that because you didn't have to labor for a wage. You didn't have to sweat to earn a living. They had everything at their disposal right there in the midst of uh, an innocent, flawless, sinless creation. They didn't have to worry about this unrighteous man. Well, there's a characteristic in worshiping the idol of money, okay? Because again, currency, as I just laid out or just emphasized, got developed through the generations. So we see that there is a reference here made in verse 11 to unrighteous mammon. Jesus says, therefore, if you have not been faithful, again, he injects the issue of faith in the handling of one's money or uh, one's funds, and he describes it as unrighteous mammon. Now, what does he mean by unrighteous mammon? Does, does he mean that money is unholy? Does it mean that money is bad? Does it mean that uh, it's, it's wrong to have money? No, it doesn't mean any of that. He describes it as unrighteous, or he, he emphasizes unrighteous mammon because he equates it to a system, a worldly system, that goes contrary to the kingdom of God. Now, it's not to say that we shouldn't work and we shouldn't earn a wage or earn a salary to be able to afford food and clothes and to pay an electric bill or to be able to put gas in a, in a car. It doesn't mean that. What it means is, is that this unrighteous man 
this system of money or accumulating wealth is separate from and is distinct from the kingdom of God. The values of the kingdom of God are those that are eternal, those that uh, we have emphasized over and over again on this podcast, and that is uh, the transforming of a person to come from a position that is lost to accepting Jesus Christ as their savior based on faith and what he has done on the cross and in who he is from as the risen savior who reigns from on high. The value of a person living for the kingdom of God, the values therein are having a spirit of joy, receiving grace, having a spirit of forgiveness, being a peacemaker, those principles of the scriptures and that the scriptures teach, those are really considered uh, of kingdom value. And that is separate from this unrighteous mammon that Jesus is talking about because it's temporary, it's part of this world system. And as we are going to get into further here in a little bit, it is often identified with sin and sinful characteristics or sinful habits and lifestyles. We've already alluded to how the love of the money is the root of all kinds of evil, 1 Timothy 6.10. But one's personal money, okay, we all have some. Some may have very little, some may be dirt poor and have next to nothing, but you have a little bit of money, tiny bit, the smallest amounts of money, comparatively speaking. And then there's others that have a tremendous amount of money. They would be considered wealthy or rich, having abundance. And then there's a bunch of people in between, okay? So whether if you have a padded bank account or you have a bank account that is on life support, seemingly, you have personal money and it has been gifted to you on loan. It has been given to you by God, and it is for you and I to manage and to manage well, and we manage it well by exercising biblical principles as we manage it. First off, there is a call for a budget. It is amazing to me how many Christians in our current day live not under a budget or not having a budget. When I was in pastoral ministry, it shocked me when I would talk to uh, married couples or couples that have families, they would have problems. They would have problems. That sometimes husband and wife would just be at each other. I could nine times out of 10 trace it back to money. There would be an isolated incident where it wouldn't be, money really wouldn't be the issue or it was not a dominating factor. But nine times out of 10, it's traced back to money. And usually... Once we established that money was the issue, either mismanagement, overspending, careless spending, um, whatever the issue was, we could trace it back to money and there was no budget. It's amazing to me how you can uh, live as a child of God, not live under a budget. I can't understand that. In other words, there's it's simple. You'll need an economics degree or be an economics major to figure this out. There's a certain amount of money coming in, and then you have a foreseeable or a prospectful certain amount of money going out. And if the money coming in doesn't meet the money going out, one of two things needs to happen. Either you got to pick up another job, or you got to find a way to accumulate more money to meet the demand for the money going out, or you've got to curb the money going out. You've got to curb the spending or cut a utility or two, or you've got to figure something out to make it work. 
but people lived apart from a budget. They just got their paycheck. And then as the bills came in, they would pay the bills and then they would spend and not realize that the spending over exceeded what they had saved. And there was this big mess. And then it caused people to be at each other. So there's a call for a budget. And there's also a call for self-controlled spending, which I've already alluded to, but there is a kingdom emphasis. This reflects a life lived within the kingdom of God by having self-controlled spending. And I know that this is this can be a foreign concept that oftentimes is uh, here in uh, the West or living in uh, abundant societies, okay? Because because there's so much opportunity, because of the opportunity to make money and to accumulate, with the opportunities to accumulate comes with that this urge, this fleshly urge to want to have or to not go without. The perception of going without, it doesn't seem very realistic or it's not an option on the table. Now, people in underdeveloped company or in underdeveloped countries, this is commonplace. This is that happens. Living going without or living without happens just by default. There ain't no money. It ain't there. So they are they're used to living in poverty. They are used to living for days without food. They're used to living in this little shack, a family of four or five living in a little shack with a thatched roof. That's normal way of life. But whether if the bank account is padded or whether if it has hardly anything in in it at all because you're living paycheck to paycheck, the personal money that you have has been gifted to you from on high. You are left with the responsibility to manage it, to manage it God's way. Now, if you're listening to this and you do not know Jesus Christ, you don't have a relationship with Christ, this is going to sound like an off-the-wall concept. And obviously, then, you're not going to be handling your money, especially your spending habits, in a way that reflects kingdom values. You're not going to reflect kingdom values in your spending because you're not connected to the king. So if you're not connected to the king, you're not getting the king's perspective. You're not getting the king's direction. You're not even understanding or have a comprehension of the king's principles as illustrated in his word on how to manage personal money, because you just think the money's all yours. And then you have a right to spend it and save it or do whatever you want with it, because it's yours. Your money is your money and it's no one else's. And it came from maybe your employer, but ultimately uh, you earned it, you worked for it. So it's yours. We're going to touch more on that here in a little bit as well and to demonstrate how faulty that thinking is. Now, if you're listening to this as a child of God and you know Jesus Christ as your savior, but you don't have a budget, man, do I encourage you to start now. Do not wait to formulate a budget. You don't need an economics professor to sit you down with this. All right. It's very simple. You piece together the money that you have coming in for the month. And then line item by line item, you list your expenses. Most of us have obviously food expense. Maybe you have mortgage or you pay rent or um, you pay, you're paying on a car or a vehicle loan. You're paying perhaps, you know, other utilities, whether it be phone, electric, water, sewer, trash, 
what have you. You're listing all of that down, all of your expenses. And then you're making an, an evaluation. Is the money you have coming in greater than the money you have going out? If you are, you ought to be in decent shape. And if you're not in decent shape economically, it means your spending's out of control. If you're not in decent shape automatically, then you're going to have to do one of two things, as I mentioned. You're going to have to pick up another job to earn more money. But the more recommended thing uh, from here on, keeping it real, is that you curb something that goes out. And I know that might be painful because you're like, how am I going to curb my cable bill? Everybody else has cable. Well, you may need to live without cable for a little while. And let me tell you, yours truly lived without cable for a good number of years. You don't need it. A lot of it on it is trash anyway and will corrupt your mind, corrupt your heart, and waste your time. I do pay a cable bill now, unfortunately. I mean, I only watch or view maybe about five or six channels. But if the day were to ever come where the Lord would lead me to cut that bill, cut that expense, I would have no problem cutting it. Or you may need to cut something else. Maybe it means curbing your cell phone uh, package. Maybe you just need to live off of a Go phone for a while. Um, you know, I'm just surmising. But God is not expecting you to keep with a budget when you are on hard economic times or harder or more difficult economic times than, say, your neighbor. And if your neighbor's pulling in twice the amount of salary that you are, it's no wonder why they're able to afford the utilities. You may not be in that position, at least not now, not yet. Maybe you will in the future. Maybe not. Ultimately, what is God's plan for you as a child of God? God hasn't called you just to have a bunch of stuff. God has called you to something specifically. And God has called you something that is of kingdom value. He has called you to be a servant of the kingdom of God. And that doesn't involve a lot of things that are a part of our everyday life, naturally. He is calling you to serve him, to use your spiritual gifts for him. He is calling you to make Christ known for him, to reveal the kingdom of God. And that doesn't involve being in debt. That doesn't involve being a slave to the lender. That doesn't involve being on stressed out economic times. That doesn't involve freaking out over whether if you're going to be able to pay for something next week or not. It's going to involve you making wise decisions financially. And we've got an idol of money going on. And as was addressed in a couple of episodes ago, Pastor Joe, my buddy Joe Kane was on with me as a conversation partner, as he has a few times on this podcast, mentioned how this prosperity gospel movement has just ensnared so many people, including a number of Christians. I echo what he said, turn off the TV when it comes to watching these prosperity preachers that promise you great wealth or that you're going to get rich from following the Lord. Listen, most of the Lord's faithful followers, most faithful followers were dirt poor, but they were incredibly rich in Christ because they had abundant joy. They had this abundant life about them. They had this, this energy, this vibe about them because they were passionately in love with Jesus Christ. Listen, the drive to worship the God of money gets a person a little something while they lose everything. Personal money is God's money, using it for selfish gain or to advance the kingdom. I'm going to add just another quick principle here before we go to our next characteristic in worshiping the idol of money. And that is personal money 
It's God's money. And I want to talk about the principle of giving. And you may be listening to this and be like, giving? I'm not, I, I don't have hardly anything to give. I would beg to differ, especially if you are living in a first world country, you have more to give than you care to realize. Because people back in the time of the Acts of the Apostles, in the early church, the early church gathered together and they they sold off their possessions. They gave of their possessions to the poor. They distributed equally amongst the poor. And it's not to say that they had a lot. They didn't. Because as I mentioned, the apostles like Peter and John and these guys, they, they were not rich. Okay. They were considered pretty, pretty poor. In fact, Peter for a while had nothing going on. Okay. And the, the apostle Paul wasn't much better off. He worked as a tent maker to supplement his ministry. He was totally content with being abased. He talked to the Philippians about how he knew he knew how to abound and he knew how to be abased most of his life. His Christian life, his life post-Christ was abased. He was poor. He was treated harshly. He was in, in unimaginable circumstances. So yet he gave and he taught the principle of giving. He taught the believers at Corinth, gather your money together. And the money you're gathering together, make sure you give it to the believer. We're going to give it to the believers at Jerusalem who are poor. And the believers at Macedonia also adopted this principle of giving from the Apostle Paul and the believers at Corinth who had originally laid down this incredible example of giving, giving of themselves, giving of their possessions, giving of their wealth. So the principle of giving is giving to Christ and it is giving from a position of joy. Giving to Christ, that is giving, it's all his, we're just giving it back to him as an act or as a display of worship because we adore him, we love him, we give up back unto him as an attitude of worship, that he is worthy of this. He is to be lifted high. The name of Christ is the name above every other name. And that's why we give unto him and we give from a, posi a position of joy. In other words, not a grudging spirit, not a spirit that says, oh, I can't believe I'm going to go ahead and give this. I don't know if I can part with this much. God loves a cheerful giver, he says in the book of 2 Corinthians. Well, not only is a characteristic in worshiping the idol of money a mismanagement of personal money, it's also withholding value from others. Withholding value from others. Because what does Jesus say again in this passage? In verse 12, he says, and if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? So now we focus on others. First of all, stealing God's money is not just taking from somebody else. It's not just the actual act of stealing, you know, like robbing a bank or taking 20 bucks out of somebody else's wallet or off of their desk or something like that and hoping they don't notice. That certainly is theft for sure. But not sharing, not exercising the principle of giving is also considered stealing because Jesus lays it out here. He says, if you have not been faithful in what is another man's or another woman's, who will give you what is your own? In other words, you've been gifted. As I've already emphasized, you and I have been gifted with funds. 
with a certain degree of wealth, no matter how small, no matter how minute or how expansive and how massive it is, or wherever you may be in between. God has gifted us some money, some accumulation, and not sharing it is stealing because some of what God has gifted to us, he has looked for us to pass on. Now, I'm not a believer in force, in human forced redistribution of wealth. I'm not for that. What I am for is that God, I believe, speaks to every single one of his children and speaks to them in any number of ways, including on the principle of giving. And if we ignore, if we resist, if we reject the direction, the God-ordained direction to give towards someone else or to someone else in need, we are stealing. The Bible says we are robbing God and we are stealing from them, stealing from the poor. Can you imagine that? That's a biblical concept because Jesus says it right here. He does not mince words. He says, if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, Well, what's another man's? I don't have another person's possessions. I don't have, I might borrow a car every now and again, or I might borrow a book or something like that. But that's not, I don't think really what Jesus is after here. Jesus is talking about how he has designated, he gifted us with a certain amount of currency. And he, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, He is speaking to us in all kinds of matters, including the principle of giving. And he wants us to give unto others in specific cases. I'm not talking about when the offering plate goes by in church and you decide to drop your 10% in there because you want to obey this this concept or this, this thing that has been taught widespread in modern day Christendom or for many, many years on this concept of tithing, okay? I believe that God instituted the principle of giving. Whatever it, it, Paul makes it very clear. Give what you can, whatever that is, whatever you're let. Don't give above what you are able, he says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 and 10. But he says, give what you are able and you're to give cheerfully. And there are people that are worse off, that are below you, that are, or maybe haven't been, but now they've fallen on a hard time. Somebody lost a job. Maybe somebody's house caught on fire. Maybe somebody uh, got into a car wreck and it wasn't, it was their fault. And now it's not covered under insurance. Whatever the situation is, God has been speaking to us on all kinds of issues, whether if it's holiness, whether if it's leading us in our calling, whether if it's directing us in how we're to raise our children or how to treat our spouses or how we are to roll at our jobs and maybe be more bold or maybe be more loving or compassionate to other um, employees or fellow employees in the workplace, whatever it is. But I believe that God is continually speaking to us on the matter of giving, and we are worshiping the idol of money when we are not giving the way how Christ has directed us to give. So by not sharing, we're stealing. And when we are withholding value from others, this is reflected in how we value others. What is another man's? Just zero in on that phrase. Jesus says, if you're not handling what is another man's correctly, how is he going to give you what's your own? If you're not handling not just their money, but handling their time, their talent, and their treasures. So what we talked about before 
in the idol in the mirror. What do people value more than anything? They value time, treasures, and their talent or their skill. How are we handling those things? When we say we're going to go ahead and meet somebody, are we on time? Do we value their time? Are we not making them wait? Or are we valuing their talent, their skills? Do we appreciate their skills? Do we notice their skills? Do we, do we compliment them and encourage them and love on them about their treasures? Not just money, but what if, you know, giving them some food, they're discouraged, maybe giving them a gift, giving them a present, surprise gift. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a material possession. Maybe it's uh, inviting them to taking them out to a game or or inviting them to your kid's game or recital or or theater production or what have you. How are we treating others? That will be reflected in how we value others. And finally, what's our source of value? In other words, the money that you have, the money that I have, did we get it because we went out and got it? Did we study hard and then apply for a job and get the job and then work hard. And because of how hard we worked, that's what we were able to accumulate. We were able to acquire wealth in the name of accumulation. Or is our source of value because we have it because it was divinely, graciously given? You see the clear difference between a worldly system and a kingdom of God way of living life. I encourage you to reflect back on uh, an earlier podcast episode called The Difference Between Two Kingdoms. That will draw or reinforce that or support uh, these points that I've just made. The drive to worship the God of money gets a person a little something, but only while they lose everything. The two characteristics in worshiping the idol of money is mismanaging personal money, again, that has been given to you by grace, that has been gifted to you by the divine Lord. And the other characteristic is withholding value from others. An attitude that says your money's your money and nobody else's. And it didn't come from nowhere other than you being able to earn it through hard work or through uh, labor. Well, this idol of money, and I'm not, again, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. Money is not evil in and of itself. Having money, even having a lot of it, even being wealthy, is certainly not wicked. It's how you're handling that money. And how do you value others in the midst of having that? With the idol of money, there is a perceived value. There is, the idol of money is perceived valuable by people that worship this idol. There's perceived value, but in reality, it's worthless. It's worthless, because think about it. If you're chasing after wealth, and there is a, a good blog article on the new blog, Keeping it real blog that you can find at kirradio.com draws this out that the chase for money is worthless because even though you'll be able to acquire a little something in the process, you lose everything. And what you gain, you gain a little something, you gain some possessions, you gain some toys, you gain a nice house, you gain a nice place to live for what? Few years. In the grand scheme of things, it's just nothing but a few years. Meanwhile, it costs you everything. Jesus said it another way in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. What is a profit a man if he gains the world yet forfeits his own soul? Or another translation puts it, yet loses his own soul. You forfeit joy. You forfeit satisfaction. You, set, you forfeit fulfillment. You forfeit intimate connection with the Lord and Savior and the King, Jesus. And you 
quite possibly, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal savior, it could cost you for all of eternity. And then by that time, you'll have wished that you did not chase after the idol of money, that you didn't waste 70 years, 80 years. For some of you, for some folks, it might be less than that. For some folks, maybe a little bit, few years more. But what is it? You pursue chasing after the idol of money for a few decades only to accumulate a bunch of stuff that you can't take with you. It, it doesn't follow you. It's here to stay and it gets distributed to somebody else. And then it's over. The results for the chase for worship are misery. And the misery comes from all the broken promises. If you think for a moment, think about the ads that play on TV or on radio, but especially on TV. I'm a visual person. I'm thinking maybe a number of you are as well. And we are visually oriented society with social media and the internet and all of that. Think of what all of these forms of media pitch you. These advertisement pitch you, you know, whether if it has to do with the lottery or sports betting or all of these things are pitching you an opportunity to get rich, win on sports betting, win on the lottery, win at casinos, all get rich quick schemes, all flowing from the idol of money, all attempting to lure you, all attempting to woo you to worship the God of money. And again, me, I, this is an idol, not a God, because it's man, it, it's been made, right? It's something that has already been established and people are taking an established thing and worshiping it. That's an idol that's equivalent to a carved image or a wooden image that they worshiped in the Old Testament times. So how can we stop this idol of money this idolization of money in its tracks. Well, it starts with a turn. It starts with repentance, which is turning from willing to lay down the chase, to give up on the chase for, for wealth. It doesn't mean quitting your job. It doesn't mean just, oh, well, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to forget about an income and I'm just going to trust that God's going to throw lay it all down in my lap. No, that's not totally how it works. It may mean that if God's specifically calling you to do that. But especially for you as an unbeliever right now, what's involved is coming to grips with confessing that you have idolized money, you have ignored God, you have rejected God, and that what is required to stem this chaotic tide is repentance. Repent of worshiping this idol and any other idol, therefore, that you may have been worshiping, and lay it all down at the foot of the cross, believing that Jesus died for all of your sins, and that if you confess him as Lord, he will make you a new person, transform your heart, and begin working in your life to take this urge totally away from you. And then from that point forward, may you continually be devoted to Jesus Christ as your Lord, and as your only true God and your true reason for living. Money's not your reason for living, folks. Jesus ought to be the reason for living. Money just comes as a gift, and we are called to manage it and manage it well, and we are called to value others as we accumulate some funds by having a spirit of giving. If you've enjoyed this episode of Keeping It Real, or any other episode for that matter, I greatly encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. And I also encourage everyone to check out, again, our website at www.kirradio.com. I greatly encourage you to subscribe to the new blog that's on there and check out the vast amount of other information 
on there regarding the Keeping It Real Network.